So, anyways, any I, I've been pretty much given carte blanche for moving forward. Nice. There is a certain company that asked if I would try to log into all of my accounts again to make sure they've all been turned off. <laughs> I said I would be glad to. I have, so... I have been told I still have access to resources. So <laughs> that it's just so not my, my... deemed worth finding it because we in each one was individually managed and logins were individual. Many years ago, I was asked after I'd left an organization to log back into the administrative interface if I could to see if, you know, it was still there. And indeed, I could still log into the mail server as an admin and I was no longer an employee. Yeah. Um, that was that was several months after I had left. So it was that was, that was less than optimal. Yep. The second time that I left that company, because I, I worked there twice, I I took the liberty of disabling my own accounts on my last day. Nice. Because I could do that as an admin. I have not disabled accounts because I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure of the repercussions of that because of he built everything by freaking hand. Yeah. What, what things won't run if you disable his account. Welcome to the practical operations podcast. I'm Brenda Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about how to bring control and sanity to an existing cloud environment. Are you interested in promoting practical experience in the operations, DevOps, and SRE spaces? Consider sponsoring the Practical Operations Podcast. Contact us at sponsor at operations.fm for details. The views and opinions expressed in the Practical Operations Podcast are our own, and do not reflect the official policy or position of our employers, sponsors, or any other reference entity. The Practical Operations Podcast is not legal advice. So we're here this time to talk about a problem that a lot of folks have that really stems from going from an organic built environment to trying to have some kind of control. It is very uncommon to start a project correctly from the beginning as code and being able to see it through appropriately. In almost every case, somebody started using AWS or GCP or one of the cloud providers for a small project, and it grew and it grew, and over time, they, things were added and things were imported and things were moved in, and then you discover two, three, four years later that your entire business is running inside of, say, Amazon, and nobody actually has the ability to recreate it because it was done by hand. And how do you gain control of this? And even having history in AWS, if you've been there for a few years, you've you've grown and been organic and features and utilities have changed and the best practices for running an AWS environment today aren't what they were two years ago. I have recently inherited an AWS environment that was pretty much what we're talking about and I think actually kicked off this discussion that we've that grew into this episode of it was originally, Hey, let's try this out. Hey, this is pretty good. Let's start using it somewhere along the way. Somebody decided, Hey, we should do best practices. As a matter of fact, it was a new hire who had experience came in and said, Hey, we're doing this wrong. We should do it this way. And try to then from then on start going that route, but due to reasons couldn't go back and, redo some existing 
resources into that into the new best practices sane environment and yeah now it's now it's mine and who hasn't inherited this <laughs> aws environment if you've worked in aws exactly you found yourself here yeah pretty much um, always and it, it yeah um so now i'm undertaking to redo everything um Due to due to issues going on in the company, we we're, we're putting a stake in the ground and, and we're going to redo it. Um, and it's <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Um, and well, in, in some ways, it's super daunting. Small discrete projects. Choose small discrete projects. Fix well, those. well, you don't want to go too small. Um, th- yeah. There's a balance to be found here. And I was going to say, in some ways, you're really really lucky, Ken, because. Very few times are you ever given the ability to say, no, 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 I have backing from management. We are actually going to clean this stuff up now. We are actually going to go through and find as many of the unicorns that we can and convert them into just boilerplate, you know, Terraform or whatever your language of choice is and not have to deal with all this homegrown stuff. You know, I... I've got enough experience with Terraform and AWS. You know, doing in any of the individual projects is not the issue right now. It's how do I set up the overall architecture, the overall design that I'm not painting myself in a quarter that two years down the road, I'm going to freaking run out in front of a bus because I've done something very badly and it's now coming back to haunt me. It's, you know, planning for the future, planning for easier use, planning for everything. <laughs> Just follow the best practices document. I'm kidding. Yeah, AWS has five or 600 of them. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say, I mean. Yeah, there's part of the problem. Yeah, I mean, one, AWS doesn't make this easy. And two, unfortunately, Terraform doesn't make this easy. And now as as the versions have incremented, things have gotten somewhat better. But, uh, I mean, going from, you know, 0.11 to 0.12 in any sizable project was a very painful exercise. Oh, that was a and previous life. Things that was changed. A, that was a six-month project of mine was was yeah. converting an existing architecture from 11 to 12. I think I've done that six-month project three times now. Because of choices they made in eight. Yeah. So I'm going from zero to 14, but it's also how do how do I... You know, the the company still exists. There's things still, in, you know, that have to be available, but they are in the wrong place or done the wrong way. And now I've got to either move them or do something to make them look right. <laughs> um, and and I really wish uh, Amazon would have a clear, this is how we recommend you set up your organization. Here's how you set up accounts within this organization. I mean, there, are, I know there's some high level docs that say, you know, having a, like an, right. uh, I am account and have a prod account, a dev account, blah, blah, blah. But then they don't show either. They're obviously not going to show Terraform examples, but it would be nice to show some cloud formations examples. Cause then you could easily transpose into Terraform, but they don't really provide. I know they sometimes show those, but there's no clear cut. Yeah. Here is an example. Soup to nuts, dev prod, Shared services infrastructure in AWS with 100% cloud formations, and here's how you go from zero to 100. This is what grinds my gears about AWS. They existed <laughs> far before we had any of these practices, and you just got an AWS account and some APIs, right? Well, turns out the only way of doing isolation of any type whatsoever 
is to create a second AWS account. Unfortunately, we have organizational support, which makes the concept of an account vending machine possible, and you could roll up uh, billing and roll up security and IAM. But the fact that AWS is, instead of improving their product to have better isolation, that they're intentionally vague and and unclear about what these best practices are is it's a business practice or technique to drive you toward the AWS implementation services. Well, how else would the consultants get paid? It's reminding me of one of the old demotivator posters. If you're not part of the solution, there's money to be made prolonging the problem. Exactly. <laughs> All too true, sadly. I mean, go use GCP. You get accounts at your domain. You get a central place to manage your IAM. And if you need isolation, you create a project. Yeah, I, 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 I do like to, that, that better. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I have to say, I, I love GCP for that aspect. I, I just wish there were short-term uh, credentials, much or STS in, in GCP like there is in Amazon. And, and that's, you know, the big boys in the clouds, there's pluses and minuses to all of them. But this is where GCP does, does shine. The the account stuff, the projects, all that is so much easier to use. And we've talked about this before on, on, on this very podcast, that there are so many more services in AWS. So if you're looking for a pre-built message bus, there's like four of them in AWS that you can use. And in GCP, there's pretty much one. Um, however, on the flip side, the organization of AWS is terrible. They've got, what, 350 services at this point? So the right thing to use depends so much on when you started, what you've been using, what you're comfortable with, what language you really wanted to use or didn't want to use. Whereas the GCP options, because they're much more limited, have to be wider in scope and breadth, but they, I don't know, they're more elegant in some ways. They're usually engineered much better. Yeah. Uh, GCP's PubSub is amazing. You can pipe quite a bit of bandwidth through that. It, in, in a lot of cases, will alleviate your need for something like Kafka. Um, AWS and their um, SNS stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> funny. Well, well, there's also Kinesis and Kinesis Streams and Kinesis Data Something and Kinesis Firehose. And there is now Kafka. There's MSK, yeah. yeah. So. so which one do you want to use? Um, one of them, sure. <laughs> I just need a which bus. Which one's best? I, I, a I, short I... bus. <laughs> and the other trouble in AWS, and I hate to rag on AWS so much for this, is that guessing wrong is expensive. If you, yes. if you choose the wrong service in AWS, you are going to run into interesting foibles of billing and they say, oh, well, you should have been using the other version of the service that was designed for high throughput things or whatever. And you have to really stay on top of all of the evolutions of all the services all the time. Yep. And that is mind numbing. And, and I agree, Jack. It does feel like that Amazon is intentionally being vague in some things in order to help, you know, say, oh, well, Use one of our partners to help you. It shouldn't be hard to set up MFA when you first yep. create an Amazon account. It shouldn't be hard to set up good security practices so your Amazon account isn't busted. What? I mean, at this point, I mean, maybe I've read the docs too long. To me, that part isn't the most difficult. It makes, or at least I understand all the flags and everything. And like, you know, you need to make sure that uh, you haven't restricted users enough to be able to add MFA. And then uh, basically you need to let only roles be able to do things, but they have to make sure that it, that, it's, that, that the user has MFA'd before you can assume their role. I mean, there's, there's things there. Um, and, and I agree. Kind of, point, Jared. 
Well, okay, I, I agree. It is a little complicated. I okay, but I, you know, that part is at least straightforward. But then when you start reading, uh, like I mentioned, just how do I handle multi accounts and what's the best way there? There's high level stuff, but that's it. There's nothing that really gives you a solid walk through. And then when you start googling, there is this what seems to be this great project or, or company, Gruntworks. But then you come to find out you can't see any of their code because it's a it's a pay-to-play thing. And I understand that I'm not dogging them because that's how they make their money. That's good. But then it's like that just kind of proves the point that there's there's these best practices and there's these ways to do it, but they're they're behind paywalls. The best practices are so complicated. It yeah. takes a team yeah. of consultants to implement them. And then once you have that, the beginnings of that implementation, obviously it's something you want to sell because uh, it's valuable. And Gruntworks was one of the first companies to implement the AWS landing zone uh, best practices, which AWS is is deprecating in, in favor of whatever the hell <laughs> Control Tower is. Yeah. But isn't uh, isn't there a cost associated with that, with Control Tower? Oh, I'm it's sure. AWS, of course. Well, some or of their at least stuff. Anything past the first like five minutes of it. Yeah. Yeah. First five <laughs> accounts are free. And and I think basic security for your account shouldn't. At least if I'm Amazon, I I don't think they should charge for that. I mean, they can do whatever they want, but. No. And know. all the defaults should be geared towards the most secure option possible. Yeah. Rather than hey, you should know what you should know what you're supposed to choose. Especially with things that are either hard to change later, impossible to change later, or have significant security risks immediately. And that's and that's really where I see the difference between like Amazon and and say GCP is that it feels like Amazon is much more like a a web framework, uh, whereas GCP is a little more is higher level has made some decisions for you. Yes, you may not have all the ultimate flexibility that you have at Amazon, but uh, the defaults are pretty well thought out, and they're it's at least much more accessible. So all of this said. Um we can gripe about the various implementation details all day long. Can you tell we have feelings? <laughs> but when it comes to taking an existing organization, an existing stack and saying, okay, we are moving our business that's already in Amazon or in GCP or in whatever into a structured, controlled, you know, codified version controlled system. Um, I know that in Amazon you can use CloudFormations. I'm not a huge fan of it, but some people are. I like Terraform despite its issues. And the next question you get to is how do you segregate the different pieces of the infrastructure? I mean, obviously your database should be separate from other things, but is it all data stores? How granular do you go? And that's what I've been beating my head against the wall with over for days now is where do I, where do I draw what lines through things? You know, do I put things purely based on the environment, you know, prod, huge projects that cover everything in prod, you know, in, in the environment, or do I break them down in some level or do I break them down into little itty bitty projects that are all sharing remote states through that mechanism. And, you know, everything's got pluses and minuses. It's that same old thing. There's no absolute right answer. And there's, and there's, everything's got a wrong answer portion to it. Cause I know it will limit you know, something else down the road. Um, I've, I've been in an environment that used a lot of separate projects that used share that, that then referenced each other's remote states and it worked as long as you remembered to go update the other projects when you made a change because the remote state dependency is not explicit, not 
propagated and you never know until you go run something. And then somebody goes, you run something and says, oh, there's this change because something you're referencing in Project B's remote state has changed. And you have to go chase somebody down to ask them about it because you don't know. Um, or again, you manage to build a circular dependency loop, which is not hard to do with remote no, states. so easy. And then it's running. But if you ever have to init from the beginning, you can't because you have a circular dependency. And that is, again, one of those traps that you have to be careful about when you're designing and planning of what inherits from what, what, right. you know, what provides what to where. And part of the bit here that I've realized recently is I have a, a tendency to lean toward kind of a mono repo style approach to Terraform. There's one Terraform. It controls all of our environments, all the things, but that gets complicated through remote state through other reasons. And that complication will encourage other people on your team to say, well, I just need to be able to, to, to set up uh, an Amazon WF to, to, you know, protect my ALBs, I can just do that really simply in a dedicated Terraform repository. And before you know it, you've got a lot of Terraform repositories that each work a different quote-unquote project within Amazon. And if done well, that's perfectly valid. Uh, but it's, but choosing the pros and cons here is, is hard. Yeah. Well, when when you say a monorepo, are you meaning strictly from a code sense? Or are you also meaning from a Terraform project sense? Like, are you meaning you're having one massive Terraform project that manages everything, or you're just strictly having a monorepo for your, your Terraform code? Terraform repository with many modules, many working spaces. Yeah. And I, that's usually personally, what I lean toward. I think that's the best way to go because... Uh, it's it's in my opinion it's much easier to handle those uh multi module dependencies when they're in the same repo versus in different repos and then you got to worry about versioning each one and updating each one and oh, oh don't get me started on versioning terraform modules yeah <laughs> that's another whole show man <laughs> but so and, and that's, how uh, are you at graph theory <laughs> <laughs> so when it comes to splitting a, a, a an organization up, I like to think about it functionally. So the visibility components you have should be one set of Terraform plan, apply, whatever's. Your data layer should be another set. Your your front-end web ex exposure should be another set, that kind of thing. So if somebody does a Terraform destroy or somebody wants to completely rebuild something, you're replacing a functional module, a functional set of the environment, not trying to say, well, I need to exclude everything from the massive monolithic Terraform plan apply, or I need to go run 15 or 20 little applies to get things up to state. Um, so I kind of like to to break it up that way. I know it's not, there's as many different opinions of this as, as, people, as there are people, but that's my default assumption because it makes me feel comfortable doing work on production systems the ability to control your blast radius if you make a mistake how much does this affect yeah and when you're modernizing projects the the hard part is the journey uh it's easy to design a new way of doing things in terraform but you know observability visibility you've still got to have good monitoring of the entire stack that includes the old stuff so you've got to be able to support both as you migrate toward a better state but also let's say you wanted to replace your 
your front end load balancers, your, your front end web experience or whatever you want to call it. You can front set up a new project. Experience. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm, I have friends in California. Um, so you have, you build, you build a new project, you load it up, you terraform and edit, you get things where you're going. You make sure the outputs and the save state have the same, the same pieces that the other infrastructure needs to consume. And then you can run them both concurrently. You can switch things over. You can switch the references over to the new one. And this way you can kind of swap while the other one is still live before shutting the other one down. Instead of trying to do a live production update inside of a project and hope that, hey, if it fails and we have to roll back, we have to like unwind all of these applies. Now, I would much rather have a, sec- a separate Terraform apply that goes to a separate save state that goes to a separate set of resources and then when it's ready you just cut over the references to it come on it's just git revert (laughs) yeah as a pro tip to the listeners out there that's what i was i was originally leaning i was originally leaning towards effectively one massive terraform project simply because the size of the company is, is not large the scope of our resources is not large um but it was just what Brendan was talking about of when we need to roll out a new version of something that becomes unwieldy in that situation. Um, but the flip side of, of it is the dependency issue of remote states because I've seen well, that. And also, I mean, I imagine you have plans to move this into CICD at some point, correct? To let Terraform do the plus for you. So what's the goal? You know, at that yes. point, is it better to have the one massive project or to have many small ones? And that's why I was leaning towards it because that's, that's the goal is to put it into CSED and have, and that's why I was leaning towards it originally. But I don't know how far down the road that's going to be given the HR bandwidth, the people we have and the, and the yep. work involved. That's going to be a ways. So it's, you know, it's got to be livable with humans doing applies for X amount of time. I would advise against having a CICD system that that runs your entire Terraform repository in Terraform state. <laughs> Why? Well, and gee, what could I, go I guess wrong? I'm, and when I mean everything, it's more, I guess more of I I would have or I guess if I was doing it, the setup of the actual accounts, IEMs, and those kinds of things would at least be a separate thing altogether. It's merely the stuff that's on top. Uh, your applications, your web servers, wh- whatever that would yeah. be a possibly a single project to allow. Yeah, and that's you know where where the line gets drawn is you know that's going to be a big part of the the design decisions. You know, I don't know where that line is because you're right. Yeah, there's there's a certain level of stuff you're like, I don't want this fucked with at all. Changes to this should be really really careful, really thought out. You know. Other, other than people coming and going, you know, if with account management, but the rest of it needs to be, yeah, this all needs to be there. It needs to be functional and, you know, I don't, I don't trust humans. I don't. Tell us how you really feel, Ken. <laughs> yeah. Especially developers. You oh, know, that's low. <laughs> We're going to get some feedback on that one. Because... <laughs> <sighs> So um, on the on the other side though. So I yeah exactly I, I, I there needs to be a lot of gates to to before changes are applied to certain things and I have been that, using the phrase over and over again that we need to have a paved road with guardrails. You can go fast on the paved road, 
That doesn't mean you can't cut your own, but here's the paved road with the guardrails that lets you go fast. Yeah, the, the default yeah. user experience, the default entry point for these things needs to be well understood and well documented and well tested. So when you're trying to do a change or an update, you don't have sweaty palms worrying about like, hey, is it going to work this time? Am I going to break crap again? Am I, am I causing another outage by doing this? It, it needs to be well understood. Well, I, I'll be honest. I'm at a trading company. If the if the trades don't go out because of something we broke, we don't make money. How's your Dogecoin? Yeah. Period. <laughs> <laughs> So there's certain things that, yeah, the bar needs to be really high and they need to be really safe. But the flip side is there's lots of changes. People want to, financial models need to be able to get deployed easily and quickly. The guys want that flexibility. So there has to be different areas have different rules. So that's why I was really leaning towards, in the end, functional lines rather than big, big overarching projects. The other piece of this to me is when you get outside of Terraform and you're looking at how do we organize user accounts? How do we organize all of those pieces? Because the devil's in the details. You have to make sure that onboarding somebody and giving them the permissions they need is easy and smooth. Otherwise they spend weeks trying to just get the basics. Um, which has bitten me at several jobs and I was bitten everybody else. Probably every listener we have has had, Oh, you started at a job and it took a month to get the access to that one last system or whatever it was. But on the flip side, when somebody leaves an organization, how do you make sure that they're actually locked out of making changes to things? Especially if the, the departure was not, we'll say voluntary. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's why, or at least, at least in the AWS world, there's a recommendation of the your IM stuff being in its own account, right? And then uh, that's separate from everything else to help minimize the blast. But then also now to add complication, you have uh, you you don't have to have actual user accounts. You could do things through uh, uh, SAML or through some other IDP provider, and you know use uh, OAuth or whatever and have SSO in quotation marks. And so it's it's getting complicated, and anyway. I, yeah, but you integrate your SSO with your ID account. Right. And that's still a separate account that has your Amazon IDs and some policies. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. And, that's, and that's, a, that's the route we're going. We're using a third-party identity provider. Their backend is going to run in an account. Everything's going to still be in right. AWS. And... That's, that's, they're going to, the, the requirements, the only thing that was pretty much a absolute hard and fast was, was that there would be a single authority. Right. And that makes sense. A single version of truth. There was no keeping, there was no syncing. (laughs) You had to be able to ask one place and that and that was pretty much where, where are you but defining guess, the association between like uh i guess roles and groups or are you are the groups that are in that identity provider synced with aws's groups and i am okay yes um and there's still a long way to go with this integration but 
there is there is glue. Um, they are a partner in AWS supports them and everything's. It's the the one we're settled on. I don't think it's sinking. I think there's some kind of shim that it actually comes back and talks to it. Yeah. So there's there's questions that aren't answered yet, but we we just know we don't have the expertise to to do this ourselves. And we're not big enough that it's going to be an ongoing thing. So we need something that we can set up and then point and click from HR to add and remove. So my other question is, especially with things that have grown organically over the years, and especially in the beginning of things that grow organically, people often hard code their user identity into various pieces of various systems because, hey, I'm the administrator of this thing. How are you going back and auditing all of those access rules and all those roles to make sure that it's only the IAM accounts and not the actual users who are authenticating or who have permissions on things. Lots and lots of manual labor. I have been manually sifting through security groups looking at rules. And the only thing I really have to go by is the text descriptions. What the hell is this IP address for? Um, the, The big rub is work from home came out of the blue and God, you know, it was, you know, they didn't, nobody had time to really design it out. The company went from no work from home to all work from home. And there was very little support. Thanks COVID for, yeah, I, I, we've had some attrition. I went this last week and found lots of former employees who still had, IP addresses allowing them access to everything. And that's that's always a, a scary, scary thing to run across. Yep. Um, also, we have uh, resources in Azure, and there you, um, similar to with uh, AWS, where you give a SSH key for, you know, the EC2 user, Azure, you give it a name and a key. I'm not the name. Somebody else is who's no longer an employee. It's his user ID and key that's baked into the deployments. Oh, yeah, changing those causes a new deployment. Yay. And let me guess, all of this is perfectly documented and captured in code? Oh, oh, sorry. (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? And then I guess the other kind of connected to this then, as you're going through this with Terraform, what are you doing with 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 existing assets? Are you just importing them? Are you going to destroy them and let Terraform create them from scratch? Terraform import, baby. Yep. Uh, just I, I due to reasons I don't have time to redeploy and then test the new deployments and everything else. It is I I import and tweak my code until a plan comes back with nothing to do. And and I think that's a valid way to go, especially if it's something that's grown organically and you may not have everything documented 100%. At least now you have some semblance of something documented or at least in code. And, uh, you know, that's something that can be iterated on in the future. So, yeah, I mean, if 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 I now the Azure stuff's great, they have a very similar idea to um, GCP as far as projects that you can you can isolate big chunks of stuff. And there, I've been able to do some testing and other, you know, build a new project and, and spin up the same resources with complete isolation from the old ones to see if I'm getting it right and if the, if I can get the internal workings going as the old one. Um, so that's been 
reasonably easy, um, but it's it's a lot. You know, the stuff's all grown organically with zero to no documentation. It is slow going to do all this. It's a lot of so work. So as a and that's why you don't do it this way to start. As a warning, um, both to you and to our dear listeners, if you are doing things like building images that you use as the basis of a deployment for, say, your HPC nodes or I don't know whatever it is you're, you're using a, a baked image for and you have those images built on a schedule and cleaned up on a schedule that are not being used, make sure that your Terraform code gets updated along with them. If you don't have the image anymore that you built the thing off of, you can still do a Terraform you know, plan or apply as long as you're not creating a new thing. But when you go to create a new one, if the image is no longer available, you may have um, shot yourself in the foot. So be careful about, when, basically when your Terraform code is, is referencing external data stores, making sure those external data stores are also backed up and managed and versioned correctly. Terraform can't fix it when somebody deletes images out of your S3 bucket. Yeah, or you can also have Terraform query to find like what's the latest tag or, or whatever, but yeah. I love having Terraform query the latest AMI. So now when you're working with ASGs for some other configuration issue and it wants to make AMI updates as well, and you're like, WTF? Or you could just have whatever process you use that b- builds those images, then it goes and updates the reference in the variables file, which is all, you know, all been done through CICD, right? So that way you can right, always right, be all right. automated. Yeah. yeah. And you, of course, test all of your images, right? <laughs> you test all right? Exactly. Oh, yeah. 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 Automated mm-hmm. testing. It's part of CI. <laughs> but realistically, that is not the position that a lot of especially smaller environments are in. They don't have the time or ability or resources to validate every piece of every stack of every component they're using. We all know that you should, that it's best practices that you want to, but realistically, (laughs) there's only so many hours in a day and there's only so many employees on a team. So you have to choose where you best spend your time to get the best result that is repeatable and safe and those things without costing your company all of the money there is. Because this is a rabbit hole, and it goes deep. It's and it's so important deep. to realize what, what's valuable and what's less so. But I think it's something we got to agree on. It's important to get that stuff in some sort of ass code, whether it's Terraform, whether it's CloudFormations, or whatever. Oh, yeah, I'm not picky about what your, your preferred language or, or tool chain is, as long as you have one. Yep. The the last thing you want is for it to be on some developer's laptop who then spilled a beer on the laptop <laughs> or it's in somebody's head and they've left the company <laughs> or they got hit by a bus or whatever. And now you're running an environment that you can't rebuild and you don't really know what's in it and you're sort of trying to figure it out. That's hard. Yep. Brendan, quit describing real life events. <laughs> <laughs> If you haven't lived it, you haven't worked I in this field I was missing some enough. Kubernetes manifests, and I, I asked those to get get committed to, to source control, and eventually I find out that literally it was on a laptop, somebody had a liquid spill, and poof, there it all went. Well, I mean, the number of times, especially early, early in my career, that the user creation scripts or all these pieces lived on an administrator's personal desktop that they had brought to the office because... The organization hadn't bought them a new machine in a long enough time that they just, I'll just bring my own machine in. But then they leave the organization or that machine crashes and, and wasn't, wasn't backed up. 
Yeah, or the or the machine crashes because it wasn't it was a personal machine. It wasn't on the company backup schedule, and now you just don't have it anymore. And I learned that lesson really early in my career, and it's a painful one. And yeah, don't do that, folks. Really, don't do that. So if Landing Zone is going away and Control Tower is a paid thing, what is the next thing we do? Like, what what's I don't know. Please tell me. <laughs> <laughs> For only nine ninety five. Because I've been. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm. Ground Wars got mentioned earlier, and in a previous life, I actually used it for a while. It is. Yeah. It I'm, is sane. It is it opinionated, is, but they actually a, have a really good product. Like I said, I'm. I'm not knocking them. Yeah. They obviously have put in some time and effort into it. Their docs show and what I can imagine. Their manifests are, and you've got to be opinionated in some way yeah. here, right? They they are opinionated, but they are pretty for the most part good opinions. It's you know if you don't have the time or the expertise, you will get a very sane, usable, ninety five percent usable environment. You're gonna hit you're gonna hit areas that don't you're you know I need to do this, and it they just don't have the way of doing it in their environment. It's gonna happen. But for the most part, it's it's really sane, really secure. It's it is best practices in a commercial package. You gotta pay for it. It's good Terraform. It is very good Terraform. What is it? What is its pricing ballpark? Like where where are you starting if you decide to go down the Gruntworks path? I can't answer that. I haven't. Uh, <laughs> somebody else was paying for it when I was using it. <laughs> Jack was there too. I think when we wanted a whole nother environment set up, I don't think we actually had to pay anything more though, did we? Listen to my new keyboard. Become a Gruntwork subscriber. Everything about my experience with them, as far as a business, it was positive. They they provided a very good environment that was sane and they weren't jerks about licensing and everything else. It, it really was... A, a good way to get your environment bootstrapped. That being said, I think once you're in bed, you're in bed. That one, it's not straight Terraform. They have things layered on top. And they do contribute to the open source community. A lot of their, their basic toolage they kind of layer yep. on top of Terraform is is based on HashiCorp stuff, is open source. And that's honestly how I found them was I was looking up some of these references that we were talking about because I would love to do this for my like personal projects because I still unfortunately run in a a single AWS account. And um It really so shouldn't actually, be this hard. Well and, and it shouldn't. And and I and I did find like they have some several tutorials and even though I'm not subscribed, it actually really did help me out uh because they described what they were doing and that was enough for me to connect the dots and figure out what I needed to do. So um so it does look like the base pricing is yearly, and it is a just under ten grand a year for their their access model, which honestly is not terrible, especially when you consider this is geared towards companies that are hiring folks of our caliber, and we cost a lot more than ten grand a year. Exactly. So yeah, I don't think that's an unreasonable price. I think obviously as you no, need larger, more whatever, it probably the cost will, cost will probably go up. But it can it can shave months of our time off of a project to get started with them, and that just pays for it instantly. Yeah. So I, yeah, their my their pricing is totally sane. 
so when you're divvying stuff up, it's blast radius, it's orchestration time, it's trying to keep things from fracturing into too many sub-projects or being in one large project. Functional grouping. Okay. Dependency, circular dependencies, out-of-date dependencies. There's a reason why we make money at this. Yeah. And then audit what you have. Make sure you have chosen at least one canonical tool that people should be using and start moving everything into version control as much as you can. Um, yeah. And if you're not, and if you don't have it all wired to CSED, run through and do plans on everything frequently to know, <laughs> oops, this got missed on this chain. How frequently can for you is frequently? Depends on the organization and how, how, how much access people have, how many people you have, how many, you know, it's hard to say. I you know, go back to one size does not fit all. I don't know how you give it an overall uh, answer, but if you, you know, if you've got a large organization and with a lot of people contributing, it's easy and a large tree structure, you know, project structure, it's easy for things to get mixed. Missed. And I know folks that but, will alert on their CICD toolage. If that Terraform plan doesn't come back clean for, you know, over an hour, over two hours or something. Um, it's it's yeah. literally a Prometheus alert. Hey. I like that because it, it helps cut down on folks I making yeah. changes in like the web console that are not tracked in code, which gives any seasoned operator the shivers because <laughs> the, the worst thing we can have in this business is somebody who's out cowboying a solution and just sort of like, oh, well, I'll just, I'll just make a change over here. I'll just, I'll update how often we do that thing. I'll, I'll change the lifecycle policy on that bucket. Why I've not? I've got to take care of this page. I'll just, I'll just go in the console and flip this number. The, the solution to that one that I'm going to use is you don't get web console access. And because that's, that's, that's the one. And the other thing that people need to really be aware of with Terraform is if you create something completely new and in Terraform may not even trip over it in a plan. It's a, it's entirely possible. You spin up a new EC2 instance that has no reference anywhere in the tree. Terraform's just going to ignore it. And that's, that's yep. some of the scariest. And especially in Amazon's account uh, model, there's a lot of stuff in an Amazon account. It's really hard to, yeah. to audit that. When you're looking at GCP's project model, it becomes much more saner to say, this is my Terraform for my project. What are these extra resources? And that's where things like the organization's tags requirements can come in that, you know, things get automated tags have to, certain automated tags have to be there from the Terraform run, from whatever. And it makes it a lot harder. You know, you can alert on, hey, I found a resource that doesn't have this tag. And that, you know, there are ways of catching it. But plan by itself can miss also i mean in in in, at least with amazon and and, in various accounts uh, or using organizations you can restrict what uh services that account has access to so if it's like a simple web app right you're you're only going to be serving seeing like a web app you may only enable ec2 or uh eks or or something like that and then restrict a lot of other those other services so you know yeah they may still be somebody may be able to still spin up like an EC2 instance, for instance, they couldn't go and launch a DynamoDB instance or a RDS instance and really, you know, yeah, mess things up. Yeah, we haven't really touched on organizations much, but there's a lot of power in its security model. But like everything else, <laughs> you've got to implement it. 
And that's also where uh, I think a lot of these partners are doing things is in the power of organizations and those, you know, the OU elements and being able to apply policies against those OUs and specific accounts and things like that. So, and I think that's what landing zone was trying to accomplish. To be honest with you, I, I didn't spend any time with it, but, uh, I I think that's what those were targeting. I love how in the end, everything seems to come back to LDAP in some way or another. (laughs) And and it actually is basically an LDAP structure, right? You got an OU, you put items within it. You can apply policies at certain levels of the tree. It's, it's LDAP. We solved this problem in 1989. (laughs) (laughs) if you enjoyed this episode please share it with your friends and coworkers. we would also appreciate folks taking the time to rate the show in overcast apple podcasts or your favorite podcast directory additionally we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on email feedback at operations.fm and that wraps it up for this episode of the practical operations podcast I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night. Hey, it worked on my laptop. I'm going to check this code in. Because raise your hand if you're in SRE and you haven't had that one bite you.